Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 71. In this week's interview, I sit down with recording engineer, A&R, label owner, and manager, Tall Oz. We covered a wide range of topics, from starting out at Interscope Studios to moving to the label side and eventually working as an assistant to Jimmy Iovine, engineer and producer management, and even starting a label. So lots to stick around for in this episode. But before we hit all that, I wanted to talk briefly about planning for creativity. Now, a lot of you are probably saying, you can't plan for creativity, Travis, that's crazy. I need to wait for the muse and the spark and blah, 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 blah. To which I say, pause this, go grab a copy of Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art, read that, then come back. So now, for the rest of you, planning for creativity. It is possible. If you aren't doing it, you should be. I do this basically every day, and I never really thought about it much until I sat down to write this intro. To a certain degree, we're talking about just being prepared. But to take it a step further, we're talking about identifying any possible barrier to your creativity and eliminating it. I use a mix template to start every single mix I do. Not because I want to get the same sound, but because I want to spend as much time in a creative flow state as possible. I've got all my favorite plugins all ready to go with send set up to various parallels and effects. And a lot of the plugins that I might use for like one or two tricks, they have the default save to open with those settings. Now, obviously, the initial inception of all this was to work fast and save time. But as the system develops further and further, it allows me to be more creative in my mixing. I do similar things when I'm engineering sessions. I'd have a mic in the booth, a handheld or an SM7 in the control room, have an extra mic set up for acoustic guitar, a MIDI keyboard plugged in and ready to go. And if there's a piano in the room, it would be mic'd as well. And obviously all these things were going to tracks already in Pro Tools with any plugins I thought would be needed. I did all this because I was taught to be ready for anything and to never be a barrier to the artist's creativity. If they wanted to do something, then I wanted them to be able to do it immediately. It took years of experience and seeing all the different needs a session might have before I really felt like I knew how to be prepared for, dare I say, creativity. See, I always looked at these things as being a prepared and ready engineer or mixer, but they were in actuality planning for creativity. A lot of you might do this in some way already. Producers have templates and custom kits set up for all their favorite sounds. Composers have elaborate orchestration templates. And songwriters have a notebook full of ideas, phrases, and titles. So we're not talking about planning creativity into your schedule. We're talking about planning for creativity to happen and how you can be ready for it when it arrives. Is your studio dialed in so that you can go from instrument to instrument and create? Are your mix presets saved in an organized fashion so that you can find them quickly and easily? Are your favorite guitar pedals on your pedal board or are they in a drawer? These are all the small things that you can do to be prepared when creativity arrives. And in being prepared for creativity to arrive, you'll likely spark it. If everything in your studio is set up and ready to go, it'll be hard to resist just playing around. That's how most of us got into music in the first place, right? Just experimenting and messing about. If your keyboards are all set up, going through a mixer with guitar pedals on effects sends, and you're hitting the speakers, you are way more likely to wheel your chair over and just mess around. Next thing you know, there's a new song idea. All of the most creative sessions I've ever been a part of as an engineer or producer revolved around a creative playground with no technical barriers to slow you down. So while you're listening to this episode today, I encourage you to pull out a notepad and just jot down all the things that have prevented you from hitting your creative flow state and then brainstorm a solution to all of them. I guarantee that once you do that, you'll wonder how you ever made music without planning for creativity. And I do want to take a quick second to give credit to my inspiration on this one. I just finished reading a book called Building a Second Brain by Tiago Forte. I don't remember exactly what inspired this thought. He may or may not have said planning for creativity. I don't remember. But regardless, I wrote it down in my notes somehow, and now we're here. 
But anyway, it's a super fascinating book about personal knowledge management and building a system that allows your notes and ideas to interact with each other and diverge into new ideas. So I'd recommend it to anybody that identifies as a full-on productivity nerd. You'll love it. Today's guest is manager and independent record label owner Tal Oz. Tal began his career on the engineering side working at Interscope, where he would eventually transition into A&R. He continued his A&R path at Mom and Pop Music before moving to producer, mixer, and artist management. Some of his current management clients include Doug Schott, Evan Sutton, and Rob Cohen. Along with all that, he started his own label called 100 Days, so we can definitely get into pretty much every part of the business on this one. So welcome to the show, Tal Oz. Hey, Tal, what's up? Hey, Travis, how are you? I'm good, man. Where are you in LA? Are you getting this like bizarre thunderstorm that I'm getting? No thunderstorm yet. Okay. I'm in West LA, but I did see that there was some chance of thunderstorms in the forecast, which is... Yeah. I was in Boston last week and I feel like I'm back on the East Coast. Yeah, right, right. I grew up in North Carolina, so it's like not really a big deal, but for there to be the kind of thunder that I've heard this morning in Los Angeles, it's kind of disturbing. It's amazing. It's incredibly rare. We don't, we don't get to see it very often. <laughs> I just needed to document that into the podcast so that everybody knew that there was thunder in Los Angeles today because it's so rare. It's incredibly rare. So we, we take <laughs> advantage of it. We have to broadcast it to the entire world. That's right. So um, you've done a bunch of things in this industry and we've, we've chatted once before, but we don't really know each other. I just wanted to start with the straight up basics. How'd you get into music? Were you a player or did you end up just beginning on the engineering side of things? I was a pretty horrible guitarist, but... <laughs> I always joke, I, I play Pro Tools way better than I play guitar. Yeah, I mean, I, I fell in love with music as a kid, kind of like maybe even like early teenager, really sort of started diving in there, picked up a guitar, loved that, and then sort of like very quickly found out that like recording was something that you could do at home and then <laughs> production and then like mixing and... Yeah, so I, I sort of like transitioned from like, oh yeah, music is really cool to like diving into the engineering and mic selection and mixing and kind of the, the studio life quite quickly. Amazing. Were you the guy in the band that recorded the band? Yes, absolutely. I feel like that's how we all started, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Somebody had to be nerdy. So did you do like any formal training or did you just, are you from LA, by the way? I'm from LA, yeah. Okay. Did you just start working in studios here? Did you do do a school somewhere? I did a little six-month program over at Musicians Institute. Okay. Which, yeah, I was like in my freshman year of college and just absolutely hating it and found out about this. And it was like a six-month program and started maybe a couple weeks after my freshman year of college. And by the end of that year, I was already done. It was like July to December and... I think by like January 5th, I was running around every major big studio in LA trying to find a assistant gig or a runner gig or just any sort of foot in the door. Yeah. Where were you going? What spots did you try to get into? Oh man, I probably hit most of them. <laughs> I had a couple interviews at Larrabee, had a couple interviews at Record Plant. There were probably a few others that I got somewhat far along. And then... My best friend and the guy I sort of made all my music with growing up, who's now a much better musician than I am, he's a composer for Hans Zimmer. His dad was the electrician for the studios at Interscope, and they were just opening up their first, like, big SSL room and, you know, got a phone call from the studio manager there, and he basically hired me up on the spot, so. That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty lucky. When was this? When did they do that? Is that studio not as old as I think it is? So I finished Musicians Institute 2007. This was like April or May of 2008. Okay, cool. So how was the how was the experience over there? I, I know it was, I didn't do an interview over there, but I, I considered it when I came out here and then I got my capital gig. What, what, was the, what was the starting vibe out like over there as a runner? Runner was interesting because, so that studio complex doesn't exist, but literally across the street from it, it, they just rebuilt it. And I actually haven't been to the new studios, but 2113, as we called it, had the last Cheap Plus ever built. Okay. Nerdy fact. Nice. And it had a club, which was basically like Jimmy's, you know, showcases, parties. You want to go watch the Super Bowl with a hundred of your friends. And so the space always was like this hybrid role of kind of doing a bit of everything. And especially at that time, like my first day was the first day that 
Studio One basically started or was like opened. And then we built Studio Two and Three and Four. And then like there were production rooms added. And then there was like a rehearsal space that became also like a storage space. And so the the place just kept expanding in a very like nonlinear fashion. But it was just such a hotbed of like amazing artists coming through the door. And so as a runner, you know, I basically spent the first year as a runner kind of just dying to get into a room. Right. As you tend to do. And across the street in the main office building, there was one more room that was Ron Fairs. And that had an SSL C200, which was like a digital production console. And Ron's a bit of a tough guy to, you know, to work for. It was a very, you know, insular group over there. It was Ron's office slash a studio. And then nobody knew how to work that board because you couldn't get any training time on it. I'm sort of skipping ahead in the story. I hope that's okay. No, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. So kind of through that, Ron's like main engineer, his name was also Tall, which was a crazy story. He grew up five minutes away from where my parents grew up in Israel. It was just like this cool confluence of events. We sort of obviously clicked very immediately. At the time, this was maybe a year into me being a runner. Ron's like engineer or assistant engineer went on vacation for a week. I subbed in for him. I had learned the board. When he came back literally the next day, Ron calls me into his office or into his studio and it's just like, all right, here's the deal. He's out. You're in. Are you ready? <laughs> and that was, you know, the invitation to start working. A week later, we're working on Lady Gaga. A week after that, we're working on Mary J. Blige. And it just sort of like, it was off to the races. I basically skipped from like being Ron's assistant to being Ron's engineer in the span of a month. Amazing. Just because Tal didn't really want to be there every day. And I was just hungry to be there and be involved. And Oh, yeah. I kind of got to know Ron's style very quickly. And I think I may have, like, just the way my brain works and, like, figuring out how he operates Pro Tools and he how he wanted everything set up was very, very meticulous, very specific. And it got to a point where I was just sort of, like, he had the, the pull cart with, you know, the monitor and the keyboard and the trackball. And I'd be sitting at the desk and he'd be, you know, back in the corner writing a string arrangement or something. And he'd start running into issues in Pro Tools that I could figure out. And so I would just start yelling the answer to what it was. And he'd be like, how did you know that? Because, like, I'm not staring at the screen. I'm, I'm just listening to his keystrokes and just knowing where he's running into issues. <laughs> and so him and I just clicked, right? Like, it was pretty immediate... And I think that he loved that somebody was just speeding him up, just leaving him very unencumbered. That's awesome. Yeah, so I ended up spending three years with Ron in that studio. Oh, wow. Okay, nice. All in that studio that's in the main building then? All in the studio that's in the main building. Very cool. That's awesome. You were talking about Tall leaving and you being hungry. It's like everybody does kind of hit that point. And uh, I, I met that Tall once or twice but yeah, it's you, when you're in that position, you need the person that wants to be there constantly. And then especially if you can back it up with the knowledge like you're talking about, like obviously you have Pro Tools memorized in and out. <laughs> if you could shout commands to him. I probably still do, Yeah, which is sickening. You know, I didn't realize that Ron ran Pro Tools. I just assume like old school producer, like probably not going to be like knee deep in the, in the rig, but he would get in there and run tools. He would get in there, he would run tools, he had a very specific workflow where he used the playhead scroll oh, no. on the edit window, which just totally messes everything up. <laughs> yeah. Like so much of what we do as engineers comes down to like being able to listen to something and then make edits while that's happening. Yeah, totally. And edit window scrolling just completely stops that from ever being possible. <laughs> it's very old school. It's like you're looking at a tape head, but... No, Ron ran Pro Tools at least enough to get an understanding of what he wanted to do. I'm sure he's a lot better at it now. Yeah. But yeah, I was sort of there to just like keep things running, keep things going. That room only really had a little ISO booth. So we mostly just tracked vocals and then you know some acoustic instruments from time to time. And then when we would go out to, you know, 
Capital or Record Plant or Ocean Way, those would be the big string dates or the big band dates. Yeah. And so that was sort of my like kid in a candy store slash incredibly high pressure environment of, all right, I guess we got, you know, three songs we got to record today with an orchestra. Don't fuck it up. Let's go. Nice. Nice. I, I remember my first night working at Capitol, we were tearing down a Ron Fair. I think it was a Gwen Stefani orchestra that was like both rooms. This would have been like 2006, though. This would have been pre my time. Pre you. But I, the thing I remember about Ron is he was always, he would rehearse the orchestra and he had to hit a coffee cup with like a fork or a knife or something. Yep. And so at the end of every string session, like the cup was just mutilated. It's like, all right, Ron's coming in. Get the mug that's already cracked and put it over there for him. <laughs> I love that. It's great. That's the thing I remember. But they did they did a lot of string dates at Capitol. I remember him coming in a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we did quite a few string dates there. Always with uh, Alan Sides a lot of time. Yeah, we had Alan come in sort of early on when I wasn't like, when he wouldn't entrust me with everything quite yet. Right. And then Alan would bring his like, he would card over his like vintage 1604. Yep. And bring in his own mics from Ocean Way. It was like, all right, this is, this is a whole production. But that's the era of uh, cartage and rentals and rebills and... Excess. Nobody gets away with that stuff anymore. You can't be like, I got to bring all of my racks with me so we can do this vocal. It's going to be $1,000. Exactly. These days, we just carry a four-rack unit with a CL1B and a 1073 and call it a day. And you carry it yourself. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, what, cartage? What, what is that? Yeah, there's no, no truck going to pick it up. Yeah. For our listeners, back in the day, cartage is when a truck would pick up all your stuff from your storage space and bring it to you, and then everybody got paid. It was, the, it was when the record budgets were massive. You know what would be uh, an interesting question because you manage producers now and you worked A&R, you were working with Ron, who was an in-house producer. What do you think about labels and in-house producers? It seems like there's significantly less people doing like what Ron was doing. When I was at Capitol, I can't remember, there was a couple guys upstairs, I can't remember who, but they were in-house people that were doing a lot of Capitol projects. I don't see that as much. Are you seeing that these days? I think it's just shifted. I think it's shifted to like, producers now run their own labels mm. and those labels end up getting joint ventures with that's true like major labels and that's kind of the new thing yeah and it brings me to my like one of my favorite jimmy quotes ever is just like you got to producers are the best A&Rs in the world they're the ones you know helping shape the music they're the ones in the studio they're the ones kind of who really have an understanding of the talent that somebody can possess. Yeah. And Jimmy was incredibly good at that. I I look back at the history of Interscope from almost the very beginning. It's empowering producers to bring in other artists. Yeah. You know, you look at Dre and Eminem, Dre and 50. You look at Alex the Kid had Imagine Dragons and Ex Ambassadors. Pharrell had his imprint there for a long time. Timbaland had his imprint for there for a long time with One Republic. You empower big producers to bring in their best stuff to you, and you create these great joint ventures, and you have a very successful label. Yeah, that is true. That is what you see a lot of. You see a lot of joint ventures now. You know, when you say you work at Interscope back, you know, as a studio runner, you're kind of like, oh, I'm only going to work with Interscope artists. But it's Interscope artists. Like, Interscope always, it doesn't matter like what's hot, whether it's hip hop, rock, pop, Interscope always has amazing artists that are crushing it. They really do. They have like such a legacy, such a legacy. Well, you mentioned Jimmy. Did you interact with Jimmy much? I, I, I never met him. I know just from watching Defiant Ones, whether that's a proper de depiction of him or what, uh, I find him to be super driven and like really kind of inspiring. Did, was he like that on a day-to-day -day basis and when people interacted with him? So studio life for me with Jimmy, it was like, you know, oh my God, Jimmy's coming. Like, you know, <laughs> better make sure like every, you know, everything is in order and everything's yeah. put together. But actually through my time at Ron, with Ron, it was sort of at the tail end of Ron being at Interscope or running Geffen. I'd gotten to know Dave Renee, who was one of Jimmy's assistants. And Dave was sort of like the remix guy at the time. And he had just signed this 
really, really cool electronic artist named Zed. And sort of at the cross point of like when Ron was leaving, that room was opening up. They sort of renamed the boiler room, which was Ron's room, into Zed 1. And Zed was spending a ton of time there. And I got to know Dave, who was his A&R and manager. And Dave had just gotten promoted. And he called me sort of like right at a interesting pivotal point for me where I thought like, I don't really want to be an engineer for the rest of my life. And he called me out of the blue and was like, I want to hire you. And I was like, okay, well, I know who you work for. I have no idea exactly what you do, but I will absolutely take the <laughs> meeting. And he's like, I'm flying out to Puerto Rico tonight for a Zed show. Let's meet up next week. And we met up and he was basically like, I don't want to hire anybody else. I think you're perfect for this. So I ended up being Jimmy's assistant for about two and a half years. And this was at a point where Jimmy was still like running Interscope. He had then brought in John Janik. And then he was also running Beats by Dre, which was definitely his his focus and his blinders to steal a, a phrase from the Defiant Ones. His blinders were on there. Yeah. So yeah, I got to be Jimmy's assistant. We were three assistants. I sort of handled more of the music, creative, A&R, studio. It's sort of why he needed somebody with technical experience, but like... Oh, yeah. So you can have those conversations with people when you're looking for files and talking to producers and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then I like, you know, ran his music library and kind of tech support, if you will. <laughs> like, but I got to learn a ton from him. And that was sort of my like second era at Interscope. That's cool. Was like two and a half years of working under Jimmy basically right up until the Apple sale. Oh, wow. So I worked from, that was, what, like 2012 to the end of 2014. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. That's amazing. That was probably your foot in the door start to A&R is when you started assisting Jimmy. Yes. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay. Very cool. I went from being an engineer and like hyper dissecting one piece of one song or one album or one like bass line or one string line a lot of the times to like very quickly digesting new music, catching up on like what are the trends, what's happening, getting to know managers and lawyers and publishers and but it was all sort of under the umbrella of working for Jimmy and the reason I say that is because Jimmy's version of a and is very different than what my version of a and turned out to be after because I can't call Pharrell and be like hey Pharrell listen to this and like I think you should work <laughs> on this hey Timbaland I think you should work on x and y song you know like yeah people answer his phone calls. That's right. That's right. But I got to learn a ton from him and just his ability to work a room, his ability to charm artists, his ability to recognize kind of everything that's happening around him. Yeah. And just his intense desire to win and to sign big artists, to sign things that are yeah undeniable. He's the best at it. Yeah. That's what comes through for me in that documentary is him and Dre, both people that, like I said, I haven't interacted with, just refuse to lose like i love to see i don't even care if it's not even music related like when you see somebody that refuses to lose like that you're just like shit how like i want to be i want to be that guy yeah <laughs> like, how, how, how do i become that guy yeah and, and dre especially is like that oh yeah he's just perfectionist that's what you need to make it in this business because you have to not be phased when you have you know you hit a bump in the road or you have a loss or a record doesn't come out or mix doesn't get chosen or whatever it is like you just have to keep going and if you can like have that last man standing mentality mixed with like actual like talent 
and the ability to read a room, which is massive. We should talk about that coming from the engineering world. That's what's going to set you up for success, I feel like. But speaking of, let, let's talk engineering and how, because Jimmy was an engineer, there's so much to being in a studio room where you learn how to like communicate with people. And I could totally see that working for him forever. Yes. For everybody, really. Yes. Reading a room as an engineer is very, it's actually quite simple, right? It's like, don't talk all that much. You know, you're not really there to give a whole bunch of creative input. That has shifted a bit where now engineers are a bit more producer-ish or producer-driven. And because everything is happening so in the box, if you are an engineer and you're working with a producer, you're probably there to like really do some hands-on work these days. Yeah. But at the time when I was there, it was like, hey man, don't clip it. Don't overcompress it. Is the mic sounding good? Is the tube like blown out? Like, please just like make sure things are working. We can always save it later. Just like don't distort it and don't like overcompress it to oblivion. Right. Being an engineer and sort of just like learning how to read the room. Sometimes you just got to like actually step out or sometimes you got to just like be able to sit in the corner and entertain yourself. Yeah. Or also just like, and this is sort of where it came, like we talked about it a little bit with Ron anticipating what his next steps were so that when he ran into an issue and would, you know, Pro Tools wasn't reacting the way he wanted to, I could just blurt out the answer because I know how he works. I know what Pro Tools is trying to do. I know what the fix is. And like, I don't actually need to like jump on there. I can just tell him like, hey man, it's your metronome is off. Press keypad seven and it'll work. Yeah. Or, you know, you accidentally put pre-roll on and now, like, you know, Command-K will get that out of there. Like, whatever those things are, you know, you can kind of... You still got it. <laughs> oh, I'm a... Again, I will not forget any of those things. And also, like, yeah. So, Shimmy also kind of knew how to work a room and was, you know, completely unafraid to, like, tell Tom Petty, like oh, you hired me to be your engineer. And then he's like, oh, I actually just brought Shelly Yakis with me and like, I'm now producing your record. And it's like, that's completely bonkers, but also like absolutely incredible. And I don't know, the other like cool Jimmy-isms, like all the Lindrum samples are Jimmy samples. Are they really? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, isn't it, um, who's the drummer? I don't remember the drummer's name, but... Jimmy recorded them. That's amazing. I'm going to think of the drummer. Before this podcast is over, I'm going to interrupt whatever's going on. It's going to come to me. That's awesome. Well, I wanted to go back before we keep going forward. I wanted to ask you, you said that you were thinking about how you didn't want to be an engineer for your whole life. What made you start thinking that? Did you think you wanted to start mixing or you thought you wanted to get more into the business side? Like, where was your head at at that point? I, I liked mixing. Um, I really liked tracking and editing and sort of like solving puzzles and a lot of what Ron did was like he didn't write songs from scratch he would take songs that were already there and then he would rearrange them and re-record them and do his Ron thing whether that would be strings or right whatever so I kind of learned it through that lens and I got very good at the editing very good at the tracking very good at vocal production but like at a certain point it became very obvious that it was a 100% service job you show up when you're asked to show up you know, you're not going to be on salary. You're only getting paid for the hours you work. And I looked at what Tal was doing and he had sort of found this cool niche where he was like so ingrained with Ron that he was getting paid nicely and could do his work remotely. And that would be maybe the pinnacle of where I could go or maybe the pinnacle would be, you know, becoming the next Manny Mariquin or somebody like that. But I just saw the writing on the wall and I was like 23 and working 80 to 100 hour weeks yeah. and was just like, oh boy, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? Yeah. And, you know, when I talk to prospective clients or anybody these days, my joke is I don't want to be 40 with a kid at a 4 a.m. hip hop session. And yeah. I think think that's still accurate, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And I was also kind of looking at the, at the future of engineering and going, man, like this is going to get easier and easier 
and more on a laptop. And engineering may no longer be as needed as it once was because it's just coming. It's part of the furniture. <laughs> it's part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It comes with the furniture, right? Like UA console is going to do enough for you to get by. And yeah, well, that new, um, the new UA interface has like a compressor on button and you like press vocal or instrument, I think. I could be wrong, but... Oh, I haven't seen that. It's like totally designed. Yeah, no, it's... The presets are coming. The laptop producer, baby. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about like engineering become less, becoming less and less, you know, um, impactful in the room. It's like, unless you're recording a band, when you're talking about maybe acoustic guitar, MIDI keyboard and vocals, like in a lot of these pop hip hop sessions... And what I was finding, and one of the reasons I kind of transitioned out of engineering is I was working at Capitol, it was an amazing studio. We were working with amazing artists, and I was spending like 60 to 80% of my week plugging the mic into somebody's apogee and then going in the hallway. Because they were like, oh, you're, we're good, man. We're, we're fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you know when we need something. Yeah. And I, I, the writing was on the wall for me. I was like, whoa. So if, I'm, if this is what I'm doing, if my bread and butter is vocal sessions, I was like, this bread and butter is, is about to disappear because every kid has been using a laptop for the last 10 years. They're all recording themselves at home. Now they're making label records. Now they're recording the label records. And now I'm plugging the microphone in. I'm like, we're going to make a change here. <laughs> yeah, right. And like, yeah. even probably even at Capitol, you will see a laptop show up on top of the Neve. And oh, yeah, you know, we're coming in patch me into like the three pieces of esoteric gear that I can't find anywhere. Yeah. And give me, you know, give me the Sinatra mic or, you know, the Nat King Cole mic and call it a day. Yeah. And then sort of the last and somewhat, you know, somber note is that Tall had passed away very, very suddenly. And that was like the nail in the coffin for me. It was just like, okay, so here's, you know, one of my best friends, the guy who sort of taught me so much of engineering, and he passed away within a week. We didn't even know he was sick. And like, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? Like he passed away at 40 or 41 with two kids. Yeah. Yeah. It was sad. Very sad. It was very sad. And it was just like, it was that moment of like, okay, you got to go do something else. Go build something else. And yeah, I know we had sort of skipped to it, but like me getting that phone call from Dave was like, that's some sort of intervention from above of like somebody calling you out of nowhere. Oh yeah. And shaped the second part of my career. I don't know, like whatever that is. Like it's, Wait, what? it's <laughs> whatever you want to describe it as. Yeah. Yeah. But I still carry a lot of, you know, the engineering to what I do now. And I, I love that. I still, you can tell that I'm still a total nerd and, you know, love the engineering stuff but i also am happy to be out of it yeah it's it, it's it's so much fun but it's you know like you said being 40 with a kid doing a 4 a.m hip-hop session like that i mean i'm 38 with a kid and i don't want to do 4 a.m hip-hop session you know like there is a time and a place for that and it's like when you're in your early 20s and you can do 100 hours and like you're not sacrificing anything and it's amazing and all you want to do is be in the studio then you should totally do your 100 hours everybody should go do their 100 hour weeks so that they can talk about it like a decade later and be like, I was crazy, I was doing 100 hour weeks, but you can't do them forever. You know, you have to like find that balance because eventually you just get bitter too, you know, because like you said, you start to just become this thing that comes with the room and sometimes you, people don't even know your name because it's just like four hour quick vocal sessions and in and out and people call you engineer all day and you're like, my name's Travis or my name is Tall. And they're like, engineer, turn it up, engineer, turn it up. And I'm like, this is, this is just becoming, am I going to be credited as engineer? <laughs> engineered by engineer. And I was lucky that I worked for a big producer, got paid quite nicely, Yeah, you know, only really had to interact with one person. So if he was on vacation, I knew I was off. Or if we were working on an album, I knew it was going to be crazy. But even then, it's like, what are we doing here? Like, yeah. this is, this is not sustainable as a, future for me yeah well let's jump to more where you are now now you're you're managing producer mixers and artists and you also have a label that you've started how'd you get into the management i guess we're kind of skipping through your a and r a little bit but what's the fast track to where you are now at, in the short answer here yeah so we'll jump through like what i guess is now like end of 2014 through the end of 2018 
Okay. That was sort of my like label A&R years. Basically like Jimmy left, sold beats to Apple. I moved into A&R. I sort of had to get my sea legs under me. And like, you went from like, yes, sir, no, sir. You know, yes, I'll turn up your mic. And also like, you know, do things with under Jimmy to suddenly being like an A&R guy, like out on the streets, running to South by Southwest, going to shows, doing that whole thing, learning how to have conversations with other label people, managers, artists, lawyers, publishers, bringing in songs, uh, giving real song feedback. Yeah. Going from like, I don't know, I don't really have an opinion because I'm the engineer and I just want to make sure things are running smoothly and sounding great to like, no, actually I do have an opinion on like the writing in this chorus sucks or like you should write a bridge or like, I don't know, it feels like you need to change the baseline here. Or like, hey, this song would work for Maroon 5 or would work for Zed or would work for somebody else. Right. I had to learn how to do that, and that took a while. And so by the time I had left Interscope, I moved over to Mom and Pop. I had really sort of like understood who I was as an A&R and also what I wanted to sign and had made enough inroads with managers and artists that I wanted to sign. And so basically by the time I hit the ground running at Mom and Pop... I was very empowered to sign things quickly and, you know, signed an amazing singer-songwriter named Ash over there. And, you know, she was just this... The The moment I met her, it was like, I want to be modern-day Carol King. Yeah. And I just heard her new single 10 minutes before we started recording. And it's not quite modern-day Carol King, but she's very much her own artist. And she's having an incredible run and just announced her sophomore album. And it's like you start working with an artist before they'd even released any original music, but she was so fully formed and developed that she just needed a label to support her and do that. And so I, I sort of loved that part. That sort of covers a lot of my A&R stuff. I've worked with a couple of other artists. And by the end of my run over at Mom and Pop, I had spent about a decade working at labels, either as an engineer or as an A&R or as an assistant. And at again, made a conscious decision like, okay, cool. I need to go see something else. Yeah. And at the time I was sort of looking at management companies because management, like big management companies were bringing in A&Rs because the labels were becoming less and less needed for certain things, right? Like there were other options suddenly for breaking an artist. Yeah. Chance the Rapper was at its, at his height, you know, AWOL was coming up. All these distribution companies were really starting to break artists and big management companies had a need for an A&R person to help their artists finish music or put in sessions or get songs or all that. That didn't end up working out for me, but I ended up starting my own management company and focused really on producers and mixers and writers because it sort of felt like the natural progression for me, right? Like you're an engineer, you are an A&R guy, here's the mixture of the two, here are producers you love, start working with them. Yeah. And what I always say is like, I can speak the A&R language to the A&R. I can speak the producer language to the producer or the musician or the artist. And I know how to sort of crosstalk between all of those. And that's, that's sort of my special sauce, if you will. Like I know different people in so many different worlds, but it's really on sort of like everything up until a record comes out, like studio production, discovering talent, putting songwriters in with artists and producers and managing producers and mixers felt like the perfect home for that. Yeah, you've spent time in all those places. You like, yeah, you can for sure speak the language. I wanted to pause and ask a couple questions. For any listeners that are maybe more interested in like the A&R management side and they don't even really know what the job is, like what's a good day for an A&R guy or a bad day or A&R guy or girl, I guess? What's most of the gig for those people that don't know? that are like, I want to work at a record label. It depends on where you are in the cycle, but there's a couple main pillars. There's scouting, or at this point, that's more like reading the data tea leaves. <laughs> it's true. You know, are you spending enough time on TikTok or, you know, any of the tools that you've built to sort of like bring you things that are currently bubbling? That's certainly one part of being an A&R guy. There's the conversations with other people in the industry, whether that's other producer managers or 
meeting with producers or meeting with artists, anything like that. That's sort of like also scouting 1B, but it's like, to me, the the stuff that you don't see on the internet, right? Like you meet with such and such producer and they play you a song that hasn't been teased yet or that isn't out yet that you hear and you go, oh, wow, who's this artist? Like, yeah, who's that guy? I, I, I want to get involved with that. Like, that's incredible. And it sort of tips back to what I was saying about producers being the best A&Rs in the world. That's part of how this comes up. And the music business is incredibly, everybody talks about everything. And everybody loves sharing what they're working on or what they're signing. Yeah. So you'll meet with a publisher and they'll tell you about this new writer that they're signing. And they worked with such and such artists. And you, oh, you don't know about that artist? Ooh, cool. Let me turn you on to this. I just played you a song that isn't out yet. You're not supposed to hear it yet. (laughs) That's how the business works. And then the other part of being an A&R is sort of servicing your clients. And that's like, could be as in-depth as giving song feedback giving mixed notes, talking to the producer on the song and trying to make sure it's as good as it can possibly be, to suggesting new producers and writers to work with. And, you know, servicing your roster is incredibly important. Finding new opportunities for them to work on stuff or anything like that. And then the last and kind of critical part to me, especially at a major label or a big label, is an A&R guy's job is to explain the artist's vision to the label. You're like the inside advocate for the artist to the product manager, to the sales team, to the video team, to the radio staff. Oh, okay. That's not talked about enough, but I think that that's really important, is if you can, you don't just have to be like a mouthpiece for the artist, but if the, if the artist is telling you they want to go in such and such direction, you can start telling the marketing person and the sales staff about that. And they will, um, they should be able to incorporate that into their pitches, into their, you know, when they're talking to DSPs, you talk to the sync person, they might know of like, oh, well, they want to go in X and Y direction. Oh, such and such, you know, Lionsgate's putting together a new film They're looking for a title track for this. Do you have anything that's in that world that's maybe not finished yet? That's what I think good A&R people do very well. That's actually a really good point. Like I had the first three or things that like it crossed my mind, but that last one, it's like, yeah, it is your responsibility because there's a ton of teams inside the label that are working on a project and like they have to know, they're not going to interact with the artist on a daily basis. So they have to know the, the vibe, the direction, at least to have something that isn't going to be a total miss when they have that meeting. So I never, I never thought about that. You're right. People should talk about that more. (laughs) They should. Yeah. And sometimes you have to be incredibly protective of the artist, right? Like you have to don't share music yet or like people who are not going to understand and see through the like bare bones day one rough demo of something that you and I might be able to hear through and go, okay, cool. Like I know where this is going. It's going to sound incredible. Yeah. But if I play this to somebody right now with like a broken second verse and crappy drums, because that's what they laid down to cut the scratch vocal. Like you, you got to be protective. You got to show it at the right time. You got to, you know, express that at the right time. Yeah. Note to listeners, be careful of where you play your, your work in progress. Cause like, yeah, not everybody, if they're not involved in the creative process, like they have no clue, like what done is, you know, you have to be like, this is done. The Ron Fairism, uh, you only get one first kiss. Yeah. Exactly. So you you have to be really smart about where you're playing a song for somebody the first time. Yeah. I want to ask you one more kind of label A&R question before we kind of jump on the management. Is there anything, like for artists that are looking for deals, are there anything that you think that they should really try to avoid or maybe things that they should expect to be in a deal? Or maybe it's 2022, how bad do they really need a deal? Any, Any thoughts on like, you know, deals for artists? You're asking specifically on major deals or just across the board? Any major deal or like large indie standard record contract type question, I guess. We live in the era of deals are possible in any different permutation. Even at the majors, there's a lot of things that they're making concessions on that they would never have done 10 years ago. Okay. Which is cool. I think you have to really know what you want from a label. Because 
signing to Interscope does not mean that you're going to be successful. Right. And now, sort of more than ever, so much of the onus is on the artist. You got to be a content creator. You got to make music. You probably have to like produce it yourself or have enough funding to be able to like pay for producers and like, you know, get that going. And you got to know exactly what you're looking for because you're probably going to get a lot of emails from a lot of different people, indie labels, distributors, major indies, big major labels. And you have to really know what you want. And you can ask for, you know, you can just do a singles deal or in a short EP deal. I, I think those are great options. I'm obviously biased. I run an independent label, but I think that I think that you don't necessarily have to jump into a major right away. And you can do a lot of scaling on your own. You can do a lot of scaling on your own as an independent artist. Yeah. And I would suggest, you know, doing that and not just getting blinded by, oh, somebody at Atlantic Records called me today. I'm getting a I'm getting a deal tomorrow. Like, no, prob- probably not. <laughs> probably not. Well, there was something I was talking to an artist recently. They were talking to a few labels, and I they were like, "Do you have any advice?" And the thing that I think they thought was the best feedback I gave is know what you're giving up. Like, I think it's super important to know what the shitty parts of the deal are because, like, you can get really excited about your advance or the fact that it's like Universal Music Group label or whatever. But like the things that are going to come back to bite you are going to be the shitty parts. And there's going to be things that you're going to have to give up, right? It's a negotiation. Like both sides are getting things and giving things. So I just, I encourage people to know, like, know what the bad stuff is that you're not going to be able to get rid of. Like, okay, so like you said, this is an EP deal or is it a 10 record deal? You probably don't want to sign a 10 record deal. EP deal sounds a lot better to me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just have to be aware of the negative aspects, I think, almost. Yeah, and the pros and cons of all of it, right? Like, yeah. if you're signing an EP deal and it's worth, you know, let's just throw $20,000, you have to be aware that if, like, you have something that starts reacting and you need to, you know, a major label would not blink and spend thirty grand trying to, like, fan a flame on something that they're seeing, you know, your indie label one EP deal might not be able to do that. Mm, true, true. Obviously, that comes with, like, you know, you're not in a... 16 point royalty and you're probably going to recoup faster and see royalties faster. And there's trade-offs everywhere. Um, And I guess the one overarching thing that you should do is get an entertainment attorney. Yes. Yeah. Please get an entertainment attorney. Don't ever sign a deal before you get one. Yeah. Definitely need somebody to translate some of those things. I've stared at contracts for a while. They're, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. So let's do, before we get out of here, let's, Let's do a little bit about your management career. Particularly, I think what's interesting is you're obviously you're managing engineers, mixers, and producers. You were an engineer. You've worked with producers. What are you doing on a day-to-day basis for them that you think kind of separates you a little bit from somebody that just like, you know, came up through the business and maybe worked for a lawyer and now they're managing? Like what, how do you approach things differently because you were in their seat? I'm probably better able to decipher what's happening or like, why is somebody not getting back to us? Or why is payment taking a while? Or what's in this contract that I need to be aware of, like a producer deck or a mix deck or something like that? What can I or can't I push on in the negotiation process? And I think, obviously, what I think separates me is just my ability to be able to bring real mixer feedback or production feedback or like A&R feedback of songwriting or, hey, yeah, you should bring in another writer on this. Or your mix is just overall very bright. And I know that this producer is looking for something a lot more shelved and like pillow soft. And like, that's part of the special sauce of this producer and artist combo. And if you're mixing it and you think it's great, but it's very bright, like you may not get the mix or right. you're going to get asked to do this or, hey, like listen to this Meg the Stallion record. Listen to the low end on that. I like what you're doing with the kick, but like your kick bass relationship is just all off and like it's not working. Those are some things that I do that are more creative. That's cool. 
Yeah, the business side is just a lot of times is deciphering the politics and then making people aware that you exist. Right, yeah. A huge part of my job is just making sure people are aware that my clients exist. Yes. Well, okay, since we're talking about people existing, do you have any, like, opinions on all the content that can be made or, or like, just branding yourself? Like, if you're an engineer, mixer, up-and-coming producer, beat maker, like, at this point, there's a lot that weighs on whether people know you and what your brand is. Do you push your clients to, like, participate in that self-branding world? Or did you choose people that have already kind of created their space? Like, what do you think about the need for putting yourself on the internet all over the place? I think there's maybe a little too much emphasis on it. You're talking about like mixed by whatever as your Instagram handle, right? Yeah, just all the things that people are doing. Like you've got your mixed tip videos, you've got your mixed by so-and-sos, you've got your, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know, whatever it is, but I just feel like there's so many ways to try to build a brand that even for like engineers and producers, like you, you said, artists are have to be content creators and make music and do all this like now i feel like producers have to do the same thing you like you have to prove how cool you are immediately you know with the internet that's just the kind of broad sweeping thought i'm lucky that my producers they kind of understand the internet but they also like they're not branding themselves as like oh yeah here's how to create the best vocal chain sound like right you know i sort of cringe at all of that because we all know that it's there's no such thing as the best. It's what's best for the song in that moment. Exactly. And yeah, I'm trying to think like Evan's done a little bit. He also has like a little artist side project. So we, we've done some of that. He's also hilarious and like in the room, <laughs> like just one of these amazing guys. So like we had him do like, he he loves cooking. So like we did like pieces of gear as things of food, right? Like that's cool. Why is an LA two way butter or, you know, something goofy like that. I just think it's funny. And like, I, I don't think it's going to, you know, markedly change the marketing or self marketing of him. Well, but it sounds authentic. I and mean, some of the other people I've talked to about like self promotion and stuff, it's like, it's when it's not authentic and you like, feel like you have to do this fake thing. And then people meet you and they're like, oh, this person is nothing like that person. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think anything you do, if it's authentic, even like, even if it's LA two ways and cooking, I mean, I think that's, that's funny. So like you, you're going to resonate with that person. If you see his Instagram, you're like, that guy's hilarious. I want to do a track with him. It probably got like five likes. So, you know, <laughs> it, it may not have been all that successful either way, uh, but I had a good laugh. So um, take that for what you will. Yeah, you got to have fun. And then other producers like, you know, Doug or Philip. Philip works very closely with an incredible artist named Lizzie McAlpine. And she's incredibly good at the internet. And she's done a very good job of, you know, promoting him within that. Mm. And they've worked on two albums together and hopefully more very soon. But I wouldn't say that he's like exceptional at like the Instagram thing. Like, right. it's... Your work sort of speaks for itself. Yeah. And my job as their manager is to make sure that they're easy to get in touch with, they do good work, their rates are competitive, and that people want to keep coming back, right? Like Lizzie wanting to keep coming back is proof that like they have a great thing going together. Right. It sort of comes back to what we had said in the beginning, right? Like this is a service business. Like people are going to keep hiring you for mixes if you've delivered them great mixes, you were a pleasure to deal with, you didn't hold them over the coals for anything, you you made the experience enjoyable. Yeah. Because artists are very fickle and they, you know, they will find any reason to say that they didn't like or didn't enjoy working with you for something or they want to change something. And if you make the experience enjoyable, people will come back and I think that goes for producers. I think that goes for mixers. I think that goes for songwriters. It goes for pretty much everybody in the business. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, here's, here's a funny question. Obviously, you don't have to throw anybody under the bus, but since you've been through the labels, you've been, now you're managing, are there things that you saw when working with other people that would drive everyone in the label crazy? Like this producer is like this and it makes everybody nuts or this mixer was so annoying with his requests. Were there like red flags that were common that maybe some younger kids can just avoid? I guess everybody's got their quirks, but... Yeah, it's 
probably more really established producers or really established producer managers or mixer managers and they've gotten to where they are at a certain level and it may be a bit more of a pain to deal with but that's sort of the price you pay when you go to a bigger producer right for younger up-and-coming producers again make the experience enjoyable don't ask for anything crazy you know don't completely devalue your work i'm not i'm not suggesting that but make the experience enjoyable and people will want to keep coming back and working with you. Yeah. Yep. Bring value and uh, do good service. It's kind of, it's that, it's that simple. <laughs> it tries to overcomplicate it. Yeah. Maybe the most important thing is like, it's not about you. Exactly. Well, you know, I, I, this has been coming up so much and I feel like, you know, when everybody starts out, things are about them so much. This is actually kind of my pod. There's an episode that came out today and the intro was kind of about this. It's like when you're trying to figure out like what your role is, you're kind of like inherently selfish because you're like over compressing things or you're overplaying your parts or you're overproducing. And then eventually, if you make it that make it far enough, you realize that none of that shit matters that you were just doing it. So you learned how to do all those things. And then you can not do them ever again. Yeah. You know, it's it's like when you're f my first week of like engineering school, they were like, yeah, I don't know. I, I like, I find myself more and more using subtractive EQ instead of additive EQ. And I looked at it and I was like, well, that's just silly. Like if you want more of something, like why don't you just add more of it? And 15 years later, you look back at it and you go, okay, yeah. Like actually just declutter the situation. That's right. Like, I, I guess I, I was listening to the Ash record that this morning, the one that just came out and it's like, Pretty loud live bass, great recorded drums, wonderfully recorded vocal, and like there's not a lot of stuff crowding it. By eliminating stuff, they highlighted the greatest parts of it. And Rick Rubin always talks about that. And I I really I listen to his productions and I'm like, oh yeah, right. This is just a very well recorded bass. Like, of course it's gonna sound good, and of course you're gonna want to turn it up. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't actually need like four layers of sub bass under it and a pad and like all this other stuff that's just crowding it up when like one well-recorded part was probably going to do it. Yeah, the the less is more attitude. I mean, the thing that I enjoy whenever I get to do some production or if I'm working with certain people is when producers think with like a mixer's mentality of like what does this track need? It needs like we need something sparkly to fill this space to lift it here. So let's find something that just fills that sparkle. It's not a full range thing. And, or it's like, I wish the chorus had this like thickness to it. Well, let's find something with some like low mids that can come in the chorus and it doesn't need to be a bright pad. It can be like this dark rounded pad. And uh, it's like less is more, but it, it takes a long time to get to that, that point. You know, it's a lot of ear training for people to get to know that. A lot of ear training and... Yeah, I mean, there's still like certain parts. I'm working with a new artist on the on the label and my producer Doug is working on it and we're having a ton of conversations about do we add woodwinds? Do we add a solo violin? Do we add like, what is that one unique element that we maybe haven't heard of in a while? Like, is it sax? Like, you know. Yeah. And that may be like the defining feature of that song or... It, it may catch your ear in a different, unique way. So I, I'm certainly, I'm not for like just eliminating everything, but I think that when you do want to add something, make it with intent and purpose and choose your sounds really wisely. Yeah, agreed. I, I, I love that. I know you you have to get back to your day. Did you want to share anything about your label? Did you did you want to talk about that at all? Sure, yeah. I I guess we sort of, Dive dove into a whole <laughs> bunch of kinda, other things. Kind of totally missed that. Yeah, so I'll keep it succinct. I started 100 Days with my partner, Ben, um, who's a Jai Wolf's manager in New York. And we started it as, hey, we're managers. We have learned a ton in the music business. The role between a manager and a label is getting increasingly blurred. And we want to be a, a jumping up point for developing artists to eventually maybe if they want to sign to a major label, they can, but we can kind of work with them in this formative state. And so we sign, you know, pretty short-term deals around an EP or an album length. 
Our contracts are very easy to read. They're two pages long. That's amazing. And we're about doing the work. You know, you get the A&R support, you get the marketing support. We have great relationships with Spotify and Apple and YouTube and Tidal and everybody. And we love signing artists that we think are unique and maybe are overlooked and doing that development work. I mean, I think, you know, I get off this call, I'm going to hop on with one of our artists and like solve the riddle of a song that they're working on that, you know, we've been stuck on him self-producing it or adding a producer or why is this song not getting unlocked yet? Right. And I just don't think you get that at many labels these days. And so that's sort of what we do and what we specialize in. We've signed artists from all different genres and all different parts of the world. And for us, it's, you know, great music with an artist who's capable of self-promotion. They know how to build an audience online. Those are kind of requisites at this point to being an artist. You can't just write songs and do nothing else. It's true. That's 100 Days in a Nutshell. We're always looking, you know, I'm sure we can add something to the bio or whatever. We'll, we'll throw my email in there. You can spam me with all of your demos. I will listen to every one of them, I promise. It's <laughs> awesome. And to me, it's that next world of like, cool, you manage producers, you manage mixers, and here's a label starting to build something that I think is sort of what what the, the future needs. Like if, if you don't need to go sign to a major label right away, maybe find a, a team that's passionate about what you're doing and they will help you kind of level up. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, um, before we do the last two questions, there's a common thread that I feel like I'm seeing in your career is that you're always looking for the next exciting thing that like energizes you and pushes you further. Is there, was that in your upbringing that made you always want to like, what's next? What's next? What's next? Or was it just from your interactions so far in your career that have kind of made you that way? I think Jimmy taught me that, that you can't get stagnant. Jimmy went from being an engineer to being a producer by forging his way in to being a label owner by sort of deciding that's what he wanted to do to like founding a consumer electronics company. Yeah. Right. Like at every step of the way, he was re reinventing himself Yeah, and taking what he had learned from before and bringing it to a new venture. And I'm also like, I probably get bored really easily and want to, uh, want to keep working on new and different things. Oh, it's so, it's so funny. Like the, the comfort zone, like if you're doing well as an engineer or a mixer or a producer, like it's easy to, cause you're already making music. That's like your passion. And then you're making money and then you're comfortable. It's like, it's kind of easy to just live there for your whole life, but to kind of be like, okay, cool. I'm crushing it as a producer. Like I'm going to start a company or I'm going to, whatever it is. Like I just, you know, I think a lot of people are okay with being comfortable and that's, that's fine. But I, I, just really respect people that are looking to get outside the comfort zone. So I think that's dope. I appreciate that. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm also incredibly lucky to have people around me who are supportive. And I give Ben a lot of credit for, you know, calling me to start 100 Days together and for constantly pushing to innovate and reiterate and reiterate again, because you can't do it all alone. Yeah. Amazing. Cool. Let's close this out so you can you can get to that call you were just mentioning. Um, I guess so. I got two questions that I ask everybody at the end of the show. Maybe I shared them with you. Maybe I didn't. So maybe you're ready. Maybe you're not. This one we've kind of touched on a lot, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? It probably at every major like career shift, I had to redefine what success was. Yeah, leaving being an engineer, working at a label, leaving that to working as an a r leaving that to start my own management company, you know, adding that into starting a label, all of those were sort of redefining what success looked like. Yeah. And what would be a considered a good year or what would be considered a, a fulfilling year. I think fulfillment's a huge part of why we do this. Yeah, totally. Do you find that like every time you made one of those shifts, did it take a couple of years to feel like you kind of, uh, understood what you were doing or did or were you pretty quick to know what you wanted to get out of your new situation no i was not quick <laughs> i was definitely not quick and a, a couple of those were sort of like tangential with like you know i started my management company after leaving mom and pop and sort of just like pretty turbulent you know little moment for me and it was daunting right like you're just like 
starting a company on your own and hoping that yeah. people will want to work with you. So yeah, I, th- I think it's it takes some time to like really understand that. And then, like I said, we were you know we've been reiterating hundred days since we started it. Like there's always new ways to get better at what we do. And I can't get complacent because we had one single that's done well. Yeah, that's just that's not going to fly very well. Oh, and what works for for one artist or one track doesn't always work for the next artist or the next track. It's always a, it's a puzzle. Yeah, I mean, one of our first bigger artists that we signed, we put out the first song in September. We put out his fourth single in April. Every single one of those releases has been tweaking a different version of our pre-release strategy or post-release strategy and yeah how everything gets made so yeah it's it's constantly changing amazing i well i could ask you a million other questions you'll have to come back in a year and tell us more about 100 days but uh the last question that i ask everybody is uh what right now is your biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it that you can share with us i think there's going to be i'm going to try and not make it just mumbo jumbo. Uh, scaling up 100 days, I think, is a very big goal. And, you know, whether that's adding more artists or adding more funding or adding more members of the team to help get to that goal, that's that's probably our big overarching goal. And then I think uh, on the smallest steps of how we're going to do that is, you know, expand some conversations that we've been having and try and find maybe some partners that will help us there. Amazing. That's awesome. This has been uh, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, please, Tal, share anything you want with people, like where they can find maybe some of your artists or anything you want to share with people on air. This is your spot. Oh, I'm not good at the self promotion thing. Um, across all <laughs> socials at T A L O Z Z, you'll find me on Instagram, probably ranting on Twitter about something, and yeah, and then you can check out Hundred Days. I think it's hunderddays.co. Yeah, we also have an Instagram account. But uh, yeah, that's where it's at. Awesome. Tall, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning. This was a pleasure. I would actually love to do this again in, in a year because I know that there's so much stuff that uh, you, you have that you could share. We can absolutely do this again. And I feel like we can dive into so many other directions that we have not touched on at all. So Oh, I know. It was, yeah, there was... Uh, is, there could have been a million tangents. This could have been a Joe Rogan length episode, but we, <laughs> we, keep, we keep it rational around here and try to keep it around an hour. So I appreciate it. Cool, man. Well, it was good to see you. I hope you don't get the thunderstorm that I, that I have right now. And uh, have a great day, man. Likewise, Travis. Thank you. So that's it for episode 71. Thanks to Tall Oz for coming on the show. We enjoyed hanging out. Thanks to all of you for listening. And as usual, if you've been getting value from the show, I encourage you to please share it with friends and leave a review on Apple and Spotify. There is also a Patreon setup for the show. If you'd like to support it in that manner, it would be greatly appreciated. And finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. And on that note, I will see you all next time.